if you don't have a good product market fit, there's nothing, there's not much you can do. Every, most marketers have spent a little bit of time in their life working on a product that didn't have good product market fit and it's miserable trying to sell a product like that. So, you know, there, it's difficult in the beginning because there really aren't a lot of great options to test a product for product market fit, particularly when you don't have a product before you've actually developed like a prototype, a working prototype, which is a big step to getting to that point. With a lot of products, it's like, it's a lot of work, money and energy to even get to the first product that you can get to people's, in people's hands, even just as a prototype. So you kind of want to start, you need to start product market testing. Hey, it's Matt. And this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Dustin Bausch has designed, developed, and manufactured many different physical product lines in his career. Dustin's newest project has him co-founding Backmate, a revolutionary doorway massage system designed to relieve back pain, neck pain, headaches, and more. My family wasn't traditional in a lot of ways, but it was traditional in this way. It was my mom didn't cook a lot of meals, but she did always cook dinner and we all had to be at the dinner table most nights. I think, you know, there was like a Friday or Saturday night where we might do a pizza night, but even on pizza night, we would still sit at the dinner table. So yeah, the dinner table was very important. Manners were very important. You know, you had to put your napkin in your lap. There was no elbows on the table. Everybody sat around and, um, you know, minded their manners every night at the dinner table. So yeah, that's, that's how I grew up. That's great. That's great. And did you have any siblings or anything? I did. I have one sister, an older sister, and uh, my dad wasn't around. So most of the time it was just the three of us sitting at the dinner table and I'm um, having, you know, polite conversation. <laughs> it was required by my mom, you know, and it wasn't, it was also, you know, not acceptable to say like, you know, fine, your day was fine, right? You know, it was like, okay, so that's now is your day. Yeah. And she, uh, you know, require that I, I went into detail, you know, because most kids, right, just want to say fine. I don't know what I did, right? But she would, you know, okay, nope, that's not acceptable. Tell me what you did today. And we would go around the table like that. I love it. I love it. That's great. So growing up, did you uh, have any sort of businesses or anything like that, that you started again, quote unquote, businesses, uh, you know, as a kid, did you ever do anything? Right. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a good question. I know a lot of entrepreneurs do, but I didn't, I really didn't get into kind of my entrepreneurial groove probably until my twenties. I mean, I think as a kid, I was always wanting to buy stuff. You know, I was really mechanically minded as I later became a mechanical engineer for a reason. I was always into something and wanted to buy something to like fix it up motorcycle wise or you know i was always ripping apart lawnmowers and weed eaters and stuff like that so i i needed money to kind of feed that habit so i was always out like trying to figure out how to do errands and chores for like the neighbors and stuff like that but i never like started a business like lemonade standy kind of stuff at all mm -hmm. until you know businesses really started in, in my 20s mm -hmm. what was the uh, most interesting thing that you tore apart and put back together when you were a kid Oh, yeah, good question. I mean, it was always it was for some reason it was always what we had around the house. We lived in the country, and so it was always like lawnmowers or tractors, you know. And so I was always like pulling that. It was really interesting to me to try to pull that stuff apart and make it run better or faster. Mm -hmm. So there was always, you know, like a an old tractor, an old lawnmower that I was ripping apart and trying to port or get, you know, better carburation out of, or, you know, f with zero money, trying to figure out a way to, to get it to run uh, faster and more powerful. That's funny. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> 
So, so fast forward to, I, I guess, your first, your first company that you started in your 20s. What, did, uh, what prompted that? Did you fall into something? Did you see a need? Were you introduced right. to something? Absolutely, I did. I totally fell into it. I went to school. My background was in mechanical engineering, and I got a master's degree in aerospace engineering after that, and I really wanted to work in the aerospace field. So I, I, and I had worked as an intern for some large aerospace companies during college and actually during grad school. I actually worked at NASA during grad school and Boeing during undergrad, and, and I was pretty disenfranchised by the large company model. I felt like it was really uninteresting the work I had done there. So I wanted to work at a startup basically an aerospace startup, like a small company that I could kind of do a lot and get my hands into a bigger part of the business rather than just being assigned to design a, an airplane hinge for the rest of my career. So yeah. I took a job actually at a lower pay, a significantly lower pay at a kind of this funny startup in Southern California that was working on aerodynamic research that was doing some follow-on stuff to what I had done in grad school. And um, it, was, it was a really funny company. It was like 10 people working there doing some weird flight simulation stuff and then water tunnel research for, for NASA, which was a follow-on to some of the stuff I had done as grad, at grad school. But over the years, it had this really funny story of history that had been owned initially by an, an engineer, but he had gotten into some legal trouble and then a lawyer had bought the company out and was running it. And like maybe two or three months after I started working there, just fresh out of grad school, it went out of business. The mm -hmm. lawyer had been using the cash for, you know, other businesses and had run the place out of business. And which was silly because it was actually a really profitable company. It had, they had some really great contracts from both uh, NASA, the government, Department of Defense, and then some great research contracts. Uh, so it, it had enough money to support itself, but even siphoning off the cash. So anyways, it went out of business and there was three of us engineers that were left sitting there and I kind of felt personally responsible for the research we were doing because we had taken some cash from both NASA and some, um, some universities to build some product for them. And the company that we'd taken from NASA was actually through some scientists that I had worked with at, during graduate school. And it sounds like, oh, NASA has a lot of money, but you know, scientists really fight tooth and nail to get a little bit of budget to work on their pet projects and that's what we were doing so it's like if we just took took up and you know took these guys money they were really bummed you know they'd worked on you know five ten years to get these grants to work on this research that we we're working on and they'd you know really be in a bad spot so i felt personally responsible to finish the the research so me and these two other engineers just kind of kept working for free because we didn't know what to do and then eventually we ended up negotiating a deal to basically buy out that part of the company from the previous owner. So I ended up just becoming a, a an accidental business owner, entrepreneur as a consequence of that. And then that's pretty much what started the sort of the entrepreneurial club. And, and so you bought that out. Did you guys have the money yourselves to be able to uh, purchase that, that IP or is it? We yeah, we didn't really have much cash. One of the one of the other guys had a little bit of cash that he put in, but mostly it was it was just assumption of liabilities okay. um, because there were quite a bit of liabilities. We needed to deliver a bunch of stuff, and the you know the previous owner would have been on the hook legally to deliver this stuff. So basically, we negotiated a deal where we took on the liabilities and a little bit of assets. I mean, it really there really wasn't much physical assets, or it was just all you know based on the value of the contracts going mm -hmm. forward. 
Excellent, excellent. And then how did that uh, business end? Were you guys sold that yeah. way, I think? You know, we kept, I kept working there for about two more years. We kept, we kept at it kind of continuing along the same path that, they, that we had. And I grew, I grew kind of uninterested in what we were doing to some degree. It just, it was a little bit too slow paced for me. We weren't really doing what I wanted to do as far as product development and really weren't getting where I wanted to be during services, whereas the other two guys were kind of happy just moving along and at the pace that we were. So I left and ended up working for a larger company for a little while, amicable disagreement, but, or not, not even a disagreement, just I left and, and moved on. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. So then that brought you into another company, which then you eventually rolled into another one of your own companies, correct? Yeah. Right. How did that happen? Exactly. Yeah. So then, you know, I, I started working right away for uh, Northrop Grumman, a large aerospace company, just working on some satellite systems and doing some mechanical engineering work. And it was uh, super boring for me. I wasn't into it. So um, I left then again to go work for a startup that was working on a robotic platform in, in Los Angeles. And, and this company, actually, for the first time, I was really engaged. Like we were working, it was really fast paced. There was a little bit of investment money, which was fun. And uh, we were working really quickly on trying to get a consumer electronics robotic platform out. It didn't end up working out, but just for the two years that I was there, I was involved in the mechanical, the manufacturing, I was involved in electrical engineering and software development because it was all like, you know, it was all hands on deck for everything and whatever, you know, anybody had the bandwidth to do, you just jumped in and did it and got stuff done. And we did a lot of work in a really short period of time. And even still to this day, when I look back at like, what we did in such a short period of time and what I was involved in. It's like, you know, I, I might start off the beginning of the day, like doing some mechanical engineering work, design work and solid works halfway through the day. I'd actually machine, be machining stuff. I'd be writing machine code and machining mm-hmm. stuff on the mill. And then by the end of the day, I might be writing some software code in Java. And, um, and you know, there were long days we'd work in 10, 12 hour days, but I was really engaged. And I also, I liked that startup, the energy and the high speedness of, speed of it and also the injection of cash from investors was really nice too like we had you know this ability to work on something that we didn't immediately have to be selling and Mm -hmm. that obviously had its ups and downs you know investors would come in and pound their hands on the table and we might end up working on something totally different by the end of the day because they weren't happy with the direction so you get a little bit of whiplash from that but the high speed of it was really fun and so i i really enjoyed that that work excellent Excellent. That's very cool. So then how did that one end and, and mm-hmm. progress yeah. into your next, your next one? Right. You've done four, you, you've had four companies now, right? Or you've been involved in four? Yeah, I've been involved in four separate companies and that, that wasn't my company. I had a little bit of stock options, but it wasn't my company. So ran that company ran out of cash and laid everybody off. And then I was kind of just on my own for a little while. And I started, so I started working on my first company that was really truly by my on my own and with uh well product development wise and i started so i started working with a friend of mine who was an amputee and had uh had a prosthetic leg that because he'd lost his leg in a motorcycle crash when he was younger and so he had some he's a really mechanically minded kind of guy and very entrepreneurial i had some ideas for products that he'd been wanting to work on and one of them was a. Uh, was a valve for a prosthetic attachment. So we start, I had some bandwidth since I wasn't working at the time mm-hmm. and we started working on a design for this valve and ended up developing a product line based around that and started just, started just selling them. You know, it was a fairly simple product. We were able to machine most of the parts 
and were able to sell them kind of in small batches to some distributors and got a patent and then luckily like you know and we're selling it kind of moving along for about a year or two and then luckily we were at a trade show in germany and we got approached by a large german manufacturer of prosthetics and they bought the company out from us and then and so it was like the first it was actually the first time in my life that i had a little bit of money it wasn't a huge acquisition but i had a little money i was able to pay off my debts i was like Ooh, yay you know and so then i started doing i started an engineering consulting company and started uh, met worked with some of the guys that I'd gone to school with and worked before and started doing engineering consulting for a while and did that for about eight years and then as part of that we we, we were a small group of guys that mechanical electrical and software engineers and we'd been working with a lot of different companies over the years doing a lot of handheld consumer electronics type products that had kind of a tight integration of mechanical electronics and firmware. So we had like built up this uh, ability to really rapidly develop handheld software driven products. And so, mm-hmm. and it was kind of the time that like these small kind of devices were coming online. So we start, so we came up with an idea to develop a product that we ended up calling Fogo it was basically a, it was a combination of a flashlight, a walkie talkie and a GPS receiver. So it was like a, basically this, combination outdoor survival device. And so we developed the product pretty rapidly. We did a Kickstarter campaign on it and then um, started selling the product. And, and um, that was a, a really, so that was a really fun and successful product of still selling online and, uh, and kind of moving, moving forward. We're working on some new products for that. And then after, well, in addition, kind of to Fogo was when we started working on Backmate, which is kind of the, the main product that I'm focused on right now which is a product for uh, health and fitness, but mostly for like self-massage and active recovery. Uh, so it's kind of the same process as Fogo. A lot of what I'd learned about how to get Fogo off the ground, we applied to Backmate, fortunately, had the advantage of like all the lessons learned that we'd learned from Fogo and applied all that stuff to, to Backmate. We had a, a fairly successful Kickstarter campaign last year, manufacturing the stuff overseas, and we're now now been selling um, online kind of on an e-commerce store for about three months and we're getting into getting into Amazon sort of uh, right now I'm super absorbed in the digital ad world and marketing side of things because we have a bunch of inventory now and we're we're selling it so that's that's where my head is right now is like on this digital marketing side of, of Facebook and Google ads and also working with online partners to help us sell the product. Yeah, you were as you were talking there, I could see us branching out into all kinds of different questions. Right, so yeah, I'm, gonna, go? I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna try to try to keep it uh, rather condensed here. So so you mentioned that you you had some learnings from uh, the Fogo product that you kind yeah. of rolled into uh, into the new product, uh, the Backmate product. What mm-hmm. types of learnings were those? What were some of those things that you realized yeah. that you shouldn't do or should do? Right. Yeah. Good question. You know, there's obviously tons of little learnings, you know, about how to run a Kickstarter campaign successfully and how to market a product and how to build up a, an audience. And we could probably talk about each one of those little things, but kind of from a big perspective probably was the, as the biggest thing is about how to design a product that has a good product market fit, how to do testing for that first. And then also how to, how to figure out, your supply chain and build up the cost of a product so that you have enough margin to really successfully sell it and then scale it afterwards. And that was kind of like the biggest lesson from Fogo's. We had a 
we had a great product. It really functioned really well. We put a lot of energy into the engineering, but it, it ended up being a really expensive product because we just packed too much into it. Mm-hmm. And so we really segmented our market down to a fairly small niche market and just made the product really expensive and difficult to sell at scale. And so that I, you know, I started to realize, you know, everybody, most people that I think get into entrepreneurship understand kind of the, the general rules of margin, right? It's like everybody kind of knows, well, you know, you, you obviously have to make a product for a lot less than you're going to sell it at retail. Mm-hmm. Most, some people know that, you know, the margins need to be about four to five X from uh, your manufacturing to your retail margins. But I don't think a lot of people really understand why that is. And it's really important to understand why that is to really embody it and then um, execute on it. And really when it comes down to it, it's really important to be able to have that margin so that you can sell it to distributors so they can sell it at retail, but also that when you sell it online, that you have enough margin to cover your customer acquisition costs, which can be pretty expensive. Um, running, running ads is expensive and it's difficult to get a high return on ad spend beyond the point where you would, you would need less than those margins anyway. So even if you're going to sell at retail or online, you still kind of need those margins to make it work. And, and then obviously those margins can't push your product into a price point that is too high for what the product will accept for what it is. So that from an overall perspective, I think was probably the most important thing that we took that I took from Fogo into Backmate. And also a big part of another big lesson was like, Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. And also, a big part of another big lesson was like developing a community first around a product and really and using that to leverage your crowdfunding and then your first uh your first product push out and really uh, yeah uh, i think that's a big part of it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you mentioned that you made this leap into this this new company at what point did you start doing your testing for product market fit for your margins and all that, all of that? Because you, you know, you come up with this idea that right. I have this product and obviously you have to go and design it. You have to do prototypes really before you have a true understanding of how much it's going to cost. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you, that there is a product market fit there. So do you have any tips on, you know, I have this idea and I want to bring it to life. You know, what are the first things that you do to make sure that you do have a winner or to sort of hedge your, your downside as much as you possibly can in that yeah. state? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I spend a ton of time thinking about product market fit for um, all of the companies that I work on now. Um, it's just obviously a huge very, a thing that's really important and probably the most important thing that you can work on 
because you know you can go through go through all this execution at the end of the day if you don't have a good product market fit there's nothing there's not much you can do every most marketers have spent a little bit of time in their life working on a product that didn't have good product market fit and it's miserable trying to sell a product like that so you know there it's difficult in the beginning because there really aren't a lot of great options to test a product for product market fit when you don't particularly when you don't have a product before you've actually developed like a prototype a working prototype which is a big step to getting to that point for with a lot of products it's like it's a lot of work money and energy to even get to the first product that you can get to people's in people's hands even just as a prototype so you kind of want to start you need to start product market testing before that standpoint and there's a few ways to do it. You know what, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, you can survey people, you can explain the product to them and ask them what they'd be willing to pay for it. But I've tried that in the past. And in my experience, it's not very effective because people will tell you things that aren't very accurate until they actually have to pull their credit card out of their pocket. You know, people will say, Oh, that's a great product. Yeah, sure. I'd pay $99 for it. But until they're actually sitting at their computer and making that buying decision and plugging their credit card in, they're not very good at telling you what kind of decisions they would make until they're faced with that actual decision. So that's a, so taking surveys is kind of like a rough way to do it. You can get some general feedback from people that way, but it's not, not very accurate. The next step. So there's a next step in it, which I think is probably the best model that I've really been able to come up with. I'd, I'd love to come up with something better than this, but this is the best idea that I have. And I kind of like got this idea from, from Tim Ferriss and some of the stuff that he wrote that he's written in his books. And basically the idea, and we, we did some of this with Backman, and the idea is that what you come up, when you have an idea, you create the best visuals that you can for it. Maybe they're product renderings, maybe they, uh, and the, obviously there's a description, maybe you can make kind of a generic video, but you do the best job you can to describe the product and make it look as real as possible as you can. And then you set up a website, a really simple website. This is easy to do now, thanks to Shopify. And you, and you basically start selling your product and running ads to it as if you actually had the, had the product. And actually, uh, you take credit cards and accept money. But of course, the minute you get the credit card, you just refund the order, call the, call, call the customer up and tell them, hey, you know, thank you so much, but you know, this product actually isn't ready yet. Can I put you on a list and let you know when it is? But that, so that gives you an idea. Obviously, it's not perfect. There's some inaccuracies in that because you might not have great images. So you're gonna have to do some extrapolation, but at least you're actually getting consumers to make a real buying decision about your product. And you can do some price testing then. You can do some messaging testing, which is really important to start message, start your marketing messaging as early as possible. You learn so much through just that process. And then secondarily in that process, it's really important to, you know, not get married to your ideas. And so I tell people like the best thing I think to do is like have two or three products that you're going to be testing through that process at the same time, you know, come up with your best three and know that you're only going to take one. So you're not really married to any of them. You're just picking the best one. And I think that's the best way to, to kind of keep yourself from, you know, getting married to an idea and, and kind of biasing your decisions because, you know, let's face it, if you have this one idea and it's your baby and you think it's a great idea, even if you do some testing on it and it tells you that it's not going to be a great idea, like you're still way too likely to keep pushing forward on that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that's kind of all the back end work. Uh, and obviously you're an engineer, so you're able to do all of the designs yourself. When you, when you first started reaching out to overseas manufacturing, what challenges did you run into? What were some of the questions that you had or unknowns that you ran into 
Uh, and then how did you react differently the next time that you did that? Or you went outside? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, overseas manufacturing is a beast. I mean, um, I know that you've done some of that too, so you understand how difficult it is. Uh, you know, China is a, when we say overseas manufacturing, basically we're saying China. Yeah. There, there's some Southeast Asia stuff I think that's coming online now, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia stuff that I think is going to come into fold here fairly soon. But right now and in the recent past, we've been talking about China. I mean, that's where the majority of my experience is. But when you first look over there, it's an amazing manufacturing powerhouse. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have the capability, the supply chain to develop anything and the technical know-how and ability. They are world-class manufacturers and in a lot of ways are able to do things that, you know, other countries just can't do because they've been at it for so long. But it, there's so much over there and the, the quality level ranges from dirt terrible to absolutely amazing and everything in between. So the hardest, so the biggest thing is to try to find a manufacturer that fits where your, where your product niche is, you know, cause some people need dirt cheap manufacturing, you know, they're, they're operating in a hyper competitive commodity space where they need the cheapest possible solution, but some product and then some products are on the other end of that, that like medical type products that need to be, have a really high quality standards and zero failure rates. So, and then obviously there's everything in between. So, I, so, you know, the difficulty is obviously finding a good manufacturer that fits exactly what you're looking for. And then also knowing how to flesh that out, you know, like you, the first time, the first few times that I started looking in China, I was just kind of doing it on my own. And like, I, you know, I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pay for somebody to help me find a factory because I don't have the money. And, and, you know, I think I can do it on my own and, and I'll get over there and figure it out. But what I later learned is that it's really important to work with somebody that is over in China. It can speak Chinese, or, sorry, speak Mandarin and can talk to the factories and understands that the relationships and the culture well enough that they can help you sort through and figure out the factories. And, and so, so that's kind of the first step is really finding somebody that you can work with and then help getting them to help you find factories. And obviously being really involved with it to begin with, I think that a lot of people will just like hire some sort of uh, a rep or something like that to find them factories. And I don't think that's the right way to do it either. Like you need to find somebody that has experience with it, understands the culture, and is going to work with you to help you find the best factory not try to serve as a middleman of some kind and then like i said understanding you know that you need to find the right fit as far as quality goes yeah no absolutely and one of the mistakes that i see a lot of people making too is they'll they just say well, alibaba right. and find a factory that makes something similar a lot of what i've found and maybe you found very similar to this but a lot of the times when you're dealing with a contact through Alibaba, essentially, they're basically just going to be a broker, which like you mentioned before. So, you know, you might have two or three, four levels of markup by the time you actually get your product. So it's going to end up being a lot more expensive. Plus you're removed, you know, that far from the factory anyway. So that's been my experience of trying to use Alibaba. So I completely agree with being direct, you know, to someone who's actually going there and checking out the factories and doing the tours and right. approving prototypes and all that good stuff. So no good stuff. So you also mentioned before about, so you've used Kickstarter for your products to launch the products. And you mentioned about developing an audience, you know, prior to launching Kickstarter. Can you talk a little bit about sure. how you develop that audience? Uh, yeah. Initially? So, 
Yeah, so crowdfunding again is its own whole animal, and there's um, people out there that uh, that that's their main focus and their main uh, yeah where they focus all of their energy is in crowdfunding. And so being able to just jump in there and like sell a product on crowdfunding is very difficult because you're competing against people that have a lot of experience just on crowdfunding. But one of the best ways to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign is if you already have a built up community of people that understand and like your product. Crowdfunding in and of itself on the outside looks like something that you know you can just sort of propose a good idea on and then get a bunch of people to back your product, but it's very much not the case. You have to do all the marketing for it. You have to drive all the traffic to it these days. There's very little organic uh, discovery that goes on Kickstarter anymore. I think it, it has evolved a lot and it used to be that there was more organic traffic on it. But nowadays, I think 99% of sales that happen or backers that come to Kickstarter projects were driven there by the project, by the people running the projects. And a big part of that is developing a community and kind of a demand for the product before you launch it. So, you know, the products that do really well on Kickstarter are people that have had a community already ahead of time. And it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody that, you know, you've sold to. It could be somebody that, uh, you know, follows your blog or follows uh, your podcast or kind of is a fan of yours from something else before or a fan of a partner of yours or something like that. And that you have that sort of built built in following and you can use that to help kind of initiate the initial interest in your crowdfunding campaign or and if you don't have it you need to build it ahead of time and you build it through you can build it a number of ways but you know the most common way to do that is by by running ads and getting people interested in your product and get and sending out newsletters going to trade shows like getting people excited about your product ahead of time and getting a decent build up like a good size audience of people and then understanding like what you're what your conversion ratio is going to be out of those people when, when you do get to your Kickstarter campaign and then applying that to what kind of money you're looking to raise. And there's a lot of really great things you can do by building up funnels, including like reservations and actually getting people to kind of like pay a small fee to reserve a spot for like an, an early bird pricing on your crowdfunding campaign that, that helps them get a lower price, but also helps you really gauge purchase intent. Because again, it's, you know, you get, you can get people to sign up on an email list and say that they're interested in something, but before they actually start putting down cash for your product, it's really, really difficult to determine if they're actually really interested or not. And so that's something that we did with Backmate that it was super effective was, you know, kind of get building up this reservation funnel where we first started gathering emails and then would take them to the next step of like asking them to put down a small reservation fee to reserve an early bird pricing. And that the conversion ratio on people that had actually reserved it was so much higher, so much, much higher than people that had just given their email addresses. To give you an example, this is kind of pretty much uh, across most industries, you'll see it pretty standard. For an email list, you'll see like somewhere around like one to 3% of people that that give you their email will probably back your crowdfunding campaign versus somebody that actually puts a little bit of money down, even let's say a dollar for a reservation, you'll see like 30% of those people actually backing your crowdfunding campaign. Wow. So, and that's what those are number numbers are pretty close to what we've seen and what I've talked to other founders see as, as well. So that gives you an idea. And then of course it's really important 
the community is obviously really important ahead of time because you can use them to help you develop your product, build awareness about your product, but also it's really important because it drives that first flood of people onto your crowdfunding campaign, which is really important for getting your rankings up on Kickstarter. It's like this snowball effect and it's, it's crazy, but it's so important to get a really large backing on Kickstarter within the first 24 hours. You can look at it like across the board and see crowd. It, it, it's a huge indicator of success. It's like, it's like projects that have received a large amount of funding in the first 24 hours will, will make their goal and have a successful campaign where people are continuing to back their campaign projects that don't get much backing in the 24 hours. Like I'd say 95% of them just kind of fail and, and fizzle out from there. Uh, so it's all about that first 24 hours, huh? It's all about that first 24 hours and it's, it's really crazy how it works. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so Backmate, so where, where are you at with it right now? What, what's next with, with Backmate? Yeah. So we ran our Kickstarter campaign last year. We finished fulfillment on Kickstarter back in December, January timeframe. And now we're, we're selling the product online e-commerce on our website. We're getting to Amazon and selling through some small online distributors like uh, touch a modern grommet sharper image and then kind of moving into small some smaller brick and mortar retailers kind of testing the waters there and getting onto amazon i forget if i mentioned that or not I'm trying to figure out that part of the puzzle that's a whole like another part of the puzzle there and and just trying to and mo but mostly really focused on uh the e-commerce part of it and running digital ads like you and i were talking about before really e-commerce these days is really driven obviously a lot by driving traffic to your store through digital ads. And a big part of that is, is Facebook mm -hmm. and then Google secondarily. But basically it's a, a lot about just figuring out the Facebook ad puzzle because that's where most of the, the most effective ad dollars are spent for, for startups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. You know, I think that we could probably talk all day on, you know, all of these different things yeah. that we, uh, you know, touched on here, but maybe we'll, we'll have you back here again in the future and we can dive deep into the manufacturing and you know different elements of of bringing a product to market so again dustin this has been fantastic if if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your products what would you say is the best way to be able to do that yeah absolutely um you know the best way uh, to learn about what i'm doing right now is check out backmate it's just mybackmate.com can check it out and uh, look on the about us page it's got a little bit of bio about myself and my partner eric and uh, if they're interested hit me up on linkedin too i'm on there dustin vouch hit me up send me a message connect with me i'd love to i'm always happy to connect with other entrepreneurs and help people out i've had a lot of help over the years of people i i'm always surprised positively surprised at how much people are willing to help out other entrepreneurs, you know, and, and I love paying that back. You know, if anybody has any questions or would like any recommendations or particularly like if they're looking for solution or service providers and looking for a recommendation or a referral, uh, hit me up. I've been, I've been around this and know a few people to go for and a few people to avoid. So yeah, feel free to connect with me. I, I love talking with other entrepreneurs. Excellent. I love it. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.